So welcome to the Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to talk about academic writing with none other than Lorelai Lingard. Uh, now, the, I think this topic is going to be very interesting for a lot of our Harvard Macy scholars who we know struggle with this topic. Uh, maybe some of you are really good at it, but many of us find room for improvement. So by way of introduction, Laurelie Lingard is professor in the Department of Medicine and a senior scientist at the Centre for Education, Research and Innovation, both at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University. And for our international listeners, that is, of course, in Canada. Now, she's got a PhD in rhetoric, and if you need a definition for that, I'll come back to that later. Uh, so she studies the communication practices of clinical teams, as well as educational initiatives to improve teamwork through that. She's a prolific scholar, more than 240 peer-reviewed publications, and in kind of a big deal, she was the 2018 winner of the Karolinska Prize for Research in Medical Education. But relevant to our chat today, uh, she's very well known for her educational efforts to help health researchers and clinical scholars become better writers, and we're going to be talking about that work today. But when I asked how she wanted to be introduced, she wrote, in a nutshell, I'd like people to know that writing is a joy for me because words are a joy for me and I hope to inspire others to feel positively about their writing process and product. Well, that's a very positive way to start. Welcome, Lorelai. Thank you. Uh, now, I mean, the departure point for me in doing this podcast was I am doing your writer's studio and have been for the last couple of months. And I have to say without fear of favour that that has been a revelation for me. It's been truly transformative. I know people overuse that word a bit, but I've discovered all sorts of things about actually having a voice in my writing, about there being stress positions in sentences and the fact that paragraphs aren't just sort of randomly sentences thrown together and then we move on to the next one when it feels like it. And even things I thought I understood, having read your uh, article about problem gap hook, turns out it's more to it. So tell me a little bit, um, you know, how do you get to be an expert in writing to begin with? And, and take us back through the kind of training that you did to become a rhetorician. Sure. As you said, I have a PhD in rhetoric, and that's the study of the social uses of language. And one of the comprehensive exams that I did was in composition theory, which is the study of how we compose in writing, usually related to academic composition. So uh, that's kind of the formal training. But the more practical side of that is that I slaved away in the trenches as a graduate student um, doing sessional instructor work, meaning part-time contract work, that kind of academic purgatory that many of us live in before we get our real jobs. And my sessional contract work was teaching writing to the unwashed masses across the university. So I taught writing to business students and engineering students and humanities students and you know, the, the full gamut, teaching them the academic essay or whatever other genres were relevant for their discipline. And after many years of doing that to put bread on the table as a graduate student, I swore I would never do it again because it's really thankless work. None of those students want to be in those courses. You know, it's, it's not any worsely remunerated than any other kind of sessional work, but it's really not valued by the institution. It's really just seen as a service. So I swore I'd never do it again, that I would become a researcher and I would do my own research and that I would put that behind me. And in the last 10 years of my career, I find myself doing more and more and more of it. 
Well, I think it's kind of heartening for me and some of our listeners to know that the joy doesn't just emanate uh, naturally. It sounds like you've found joy in this coaching writing. It wasn't always thus. No, it wasn't always thus. But actually, you know, the joy is relational. So, you know, I said those undergraduate students, they didn't want to be in those required writing courses. But the, the scholars that I work with now nobody's forcing them to come. They want to come. And so it really is a joy in interacting with people who really want to work on their writing. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think that uh, has obviously parallels with most of the learning and teaching we do, isn't it? Uh, The learner really has to need to want to be there for the teacher to get a lot of joy out of it. Um, Now, I said I'd give a definition, and I think it's only fair because not everyone's into rhetoric. Uh, So for those of us who secretly might have just looked it up, this is the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing especially the exploitation of figures of speech and other compositional techniques. So it's more than just knowing the parts of speech in English, isn't it? It's Yeah, it's about organizing language for the purpose of persuasion. That's what it's about. And persuasion meant not as a negative connotation. So rhetoric sometimes has a negative connotation. Even in the definition you read, the word exploitive, it gives you a bit of a shiver. Um, really, it's it's about having mastery over language, grammatical, rhetorical, kind of stylistic features, so that you can achieve a desired effect on an audience. Hmm. Yes, thank you. That's very helpful. All right. Well, this is probably a good point then to think. Well, sure, you're wrapped up in the world of English. You clearly would probably quite like to be a professor of English, but it didn't work out that way. And I listened to the Curiosity Habit podcast where you explained how uh, one of your research collaborators sent you the job ad. Um, Can you just give us a little sense about that jumping into the world of health professions education? Yeah, sure. So I was wrapping up my PhD and I was on the tenure track interview circuit as any, you know, self-respecting PhD student would be in the humanities. And there are very few jobs for for English PhDs then and now. So I wasn't having success getting the jobs I thought I had trained for. And a colleague from General Internal Medicine at UCSF in San Francisco sent me this job ad, said, I really think you should consider applying for this. And so I read it through. It's kind of interesting. It's the University of Toronto. It's a good school. Um, It's really focused on research. Sounds really good. But I had to email him back and say, um, you can just help me out because there's this phrase that gets used repeatedly in the job ad, evidence-based medicine. What is that? They want me to do research related to evidence-based medicine. And what I know now is that that was a God term at the time 20 years ago. Um, It's really not anymore, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. And so he had to have a conversation with me so that I could present myself (laughs) as having a sense of what this job was about when I really didn't have a clue. Yeah, it's interesting. And I've heard you talk about these God terms. They're the ones that in a conversation you lay them on the table and then suddenly everyone has to stop talking because you've pulled out the trump card. Uh, But you're quite right about, and that would be another whole podcast about evidence-based medicine and perhaps more generically, how the meaning of words shifts and uh, particularly things can get a little bit of a stain about them uh, where they're well-intentioned initially, then uh, they can sometimes, if they're not genuinely expressed, can be problematic. All right, well, let's get on to helping academics write better. And I think the place that many of us first became aware of the work you were doing is in the Writer's Craft series. And you did that with, um, in fact, quite a few of the articles were with Chris Watling, who is, in fact, a Harvard Macy uh, alumnus. 
And I'm going to quote from the first article you wrote in Perspectives in MedEd where these um, are published in 2015. Um, and I'm going to quote here. Let's be frank, a lot of our scientific writing is terrible, dry, chalky, convoluted stuff that even an engaged reader struggles to choke down. We find ourselves in a troubling situation. One of our valued practices, writing, is highly fraught, both because many individual writers feel unskilled and because our community perpetrates a shared genre we love to hate for its lack of energy, clarity and story. I mean, wow, that was really putting it out there, Lorelai. You must have felt pretty strongly about it. Yes, I did feel strongly about it. I still do. And it's not something I equivocate about. Um, and I think what's important to recognize in that you're fairly assertive stance in the first Writer's Craft article is that I was talking about a genre we love to hate. I wasn't talking about um, health professions, education research is full of bad writers. That's not what I said. I said, we, we have socialized ourselves to write in this horrible way. <laughs> And we must stop. And I'm on a bit of a mission to get people to stop. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think that's part of it, isn't it? People probably come to this with quite good skills at telling stories, uh, but then they feel like they have to suddenly use weird words and phrases thrown in and this sort of stilted way of communicating uh, because it's factual or objective. Some of these are also terms that are thrown around, aren't they? Absolutely. And I like the phrase encrustations. I find that people's ideas are covered in these encrustations, these, these, these long phrases, all this gobbledygook, this complex sentence and paragraph structure. And I will often ask a writer when they send me a piece of writing for feedback, I'll say, well, I'll set the writing aside and I'll say, tell me about this piece of work. And what they say is often so eloquent. And I will ask, why didn't you just write that? <laughs> and they look quite startled, like, well, I can't just write that. Well, yeah, you could just write that. Yeah, I think that's very liberating for people. Um, can I also ask, and this is interesting, how long did it take you to write that uh, two sentences in the writer's craft because one of the pressures on someone who thinks they're pretty good at English is that your expression, written expression, has to be really good for us to go, wow, how did she manage to do that? So just give us a bit of an idea. Did those two sentences just come out like that or did you have to spend half an hour actually crafting uh, the way you put your semicolons and colons and commas and m dashes in those two sentences? Well, let me start by confessing that I am a pathological reviser. I can't get three words typed into the keyboard before I'm wondering whether the cadence between one and two is as nice as it could be. So I'm, I'm constantly recursively revising as I go. So no, it doesn't just flow out of me onto the page and that's what gets submitted. But at the same time, there's something about the writer's craft genre. It's sort of a genre I've created for myself. Um, it allows me to speak in my own voice. And it's, it's so much easier when you can speak in your own voice and then decide where it needs a bit of an alteration or a bit of a drawing back, a little bit more equipoise. But if you can put it on the page in your own voice to start with, I find it very freeing to write these pieces. And in fact, I write a lot of writer's crafts because it's my go-to procrastination strategy when I should be writing something that's more difficult for me. <laughs> Fantastic. And it allows you to start a sentence with, 
let's be frank, comma. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really does engage, as you say. Uh, so I guess what to do, having found this uh, dry, chalky and convoluted stuff, uh, I'm again going to sort of quote, the writer's craft directly tackles this problem in our field uh, and you offer simple tips to improve writing in three areas, energy, clarity and persuasiveness. And I've looked through so many of those articles, both at the time and in preparation for this podcast. Um, the problem gap hook is very uh, obviously famous about how do you start your writing piece. Uh, but go through a couple more of these, even the topics themselves, you've chosen carefully how to describe them. Does your discussion realise its potential? Mastering the sentence, enlisting the power of the verb, getting control of your commas. Um, how do you come up with the topics? You say it's your go-to procrastination, but how do you decide, hmm, I think people's commas need a little bit of commentary? I'm trying to think how many I've written. I suspect I've maybe written 20 and Chris has written a few and we've written a few collaboratively and Laura Varpio wrote one. So I'm not the only person who, who produces these. Um, I would say the first dozen or so were dead easy because they were things I wished I'd had a piece to hand people because I'm always having this conversation. I realize that, let's take commas, for example. Many of us struggle with understanding what to do with commas. And it's because it's it's complex and there are multiple approaches to comma rules. And I just have this conversation over and over again and I write the comment box and explain and I thought, geez, wouldn't it be great if there were just something I could hand people and then they could instruct themselves about that and have it as a resource. And there's lots of writing about writing, but these pieces are very much tailored to busy scientists who have neither time nor appetite for all of the grammatical and linguistic knowledge underpinning it, I try and distill that and then give it to them in about 1,500 words with examples that are relevant to them. Uh, so that's, first, it's all the stuff I find myself teaching anyway. And now, increasingly, it's it's a little bit more esoteric. Sometimes it feels like just things that occur to me. And I think, I think that might be useful for people to know. Like, you know, the issue of voice or some of the issues about modality. They're, they're a little bit, they're not as core, let's mm. say. They're not the basic lessons I would find myself chatting with people about, but I still think they're really important. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head there. They really are accessible because they're only in that 1,200 to 1,500 words and you can be quite directed and you're thinking, should that be a comma there? I know. I bet you there's a uh, either a chapter in the book or an article in the writer's craft that pertains to it. Uh, so just a reminder for Harvard Macy listeners, if you want to go back, uh, go to the journal Perspectives in Medical Education and just put in writer's craft and you'll come up with a whole series of them. Many of them are uh, translated into the book that we're going to talk about shortly, but um, it's worth going back and having a bit of a look at those those topics. And I'll give you the other use of it. So I've, over the last 12 months, done a couple of writer's retreats with friends. And it's funny how you get to something and you go, hmm, I know she's got that thing about using quotes. And you can just then dip in and, and have a little re-reference. So I think that's quite good. All right, well, let's talk about writing courses and coaches because I suppose one of the things is you've got the sort of written word there and you hope people have a read of it and get it. But clearly now you've transitioned to thinking, hmm, sometimes people need more direct coaching than merely being presented with a better way. Um, tell us firstly, uh, you know, the motivation and practicality of moving into that kind of coaching. Uh, and then maybe we can talk about what are the common things you find when you do it. 
I would say that I moved into coaching for, well, coaching, teaching workshops. I do a lot of different variations, small group, larger group. But one of the, one of the impetuses for moving to that and not just keeping things in, in the written form is truly selfish. I get enormous satisfaction out of engaging with writers and helping them find their way of telling the story. That's enormously gratifying for me. So it's partly selfish. But the other reason was a recognition um, early on of something that you said at the beginning of this, Vic, and that's um, that you'd read Problem Gap Hook, but you realized that there was more to it than you'd appreciated in reading the writer's craft. That's partly because the writer's craft pieces are these very distilled bite-size resources and they're an oversimplification, but it's also partly because it's in the dialogic back and forth and playing with the language and translating the thinking into the language that the piece of writing really finds its potential. So I think the writer's craft resources and the book they're great, but I feel as though people can achieve so much more if they've read them first, and then we have this kind of coaching interaction using that as a foundation. Mm. And just to put some practicality on that for our listeners, so for example, when we've been doing these writer's studio sessions with you, we have a little bit where you talk to us about some concepts, and then we actually have quite a block of writing time, and then we just uh, individually get to sort of say, have a bit of a look at this. And what impresses me is that you don't get out the red pen and just make it better. You actually talk to us about the writing, and we try and make it better. Uh, That must take a bit of restraint. It does take restraint. It takes self-discipline. And I'm not nearly as good at that when I'm invested in the piece of writing. The beauty of the coaching relationship is that I'm invested in the writer. Hmm. And so I don't, I don't edit the page because for me, it's not about what's on the page. It's about how the writer is refining, enhancing their ability to get things on the page. But when I'm a co-author on a piece of work that I'm really invested in, my self-discipline does collapse at times and I just track change because I can't help myself. (laughs) I can understand that. Uh, And interestingly, there is, in fact, a writer's craft on the topic of how to give feedback to others on writing. So I would uh, recommend that people have a look at that one as well. Uh, I know it would be a pretty big topic, but um, do you give us a little sense of the patterns that you find? What are the things that people find really problematic versus the things that you think, uh, you know, well-educated people can tend to get right in their academic writing? I will say that many of the health researchers that I work with on writing have a very good instinct for grammar and composition. It's buried really deep for some people. It's way back in English and they don't have the language at their tip of their tongue to describe it, but they they know when something's not right, they can often fix it, but they can't necessarily prevent themselves from doing the same thing again or help somebody else avoid making the same mistake again. So people have a really good instinct. Many people have some really good basic training and we're bringing that to the surface. We're excavating that knowledge for them again in the grammar pearls that we do. I also think that many people have an ability to tell their story orally. Very rarely do I sit down in the conversation part of the coaching and think, I just don't, I can't understand this person's story. People are pretty good at that. 
So it's in the translation to the written word. So what are the problems in the translation to the written word? These encrustations, this um, performance of a genre that we think we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be disinterested. We're supposed to be very distant from the topic. We're supposed to sound academic, which usually means super long sentences and elaborate constructions. And those things can be beautiful and in service of, of a persuasive story, but not that the story's not crystal clear first. Mm, yeah, so all these uh, encrustations, it's just such a beautiful description where people put and therefore and so as and it is obvious that and uh, all these additional phrases that you wouldn't hear them say. Exactly. And I, I would say one of the other recurring challenges I see in uh, health researchers as writers is that they're working on really complex problems. These are not simple stories. These are complex stories they're trying to tell. And so the strategies to achieve coherence, to keep the reader moving through that complexity with you and, and understanding the nuance but not getting bogged down in it, those coherent strategies, people need uh, broader repertoire, explicit repertoire for those. So I spend a lot of time teaching coherence. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I've noticed recently is you really honing in on reader expectations. Like yes. if people are expecting methods to be written a certain way, tell them why you're writing it either that way or a different way. And people go, oh, yeah, I can get on board with that. But that involves actually thinking, uh, someone's reading this, I'm not just writing it. Writing for the reader, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's. Um, a lot of these things have now become crystallized in the book. And again, for Harvard Macy listeners, we'll put a link to the book. So this is called Story Not Study 30 Brief Lessons to Inspire Health Researchers as Writers. Now, I get the sense that some of the purpose of this is to become a bit of a textbook for your coaching work and a bit of a one stop shop for a version of the writer's craft. Uh, so I think you've made allusion to it, but can you just double click on this um, concept of story, not study for us? Yes. So the book is very much a collaborative labor, labor of love between Chris Watling and me. And it centers on this motif, if you will, of story, not study. So essentially what we're saying in the book is um, number one, we can't help you with your study. <laughs> Your study's a done deal. And so we're starting with the premise that you did a you did a solid study and you tackled a problem that matters in the world. Um, and that that's not sufficient. Um, it's, a, it's a sad truth that nobody cares that we did good studies, actually. What they might care about is the contribution that we can make to a conversation in the world. People are having a conversation about something that matters and we can make a contribution. That's the story. So we're trying to shift people from this idea that I'm, I did my study and now I'm going to write it up and it'll get published and ta-da. And we're shifting that to saying, we're not writing up a study. The study's there and it needs to be described, but then we need to make something meaningful out of it. And that's the story. And we are also purposefully trying to reclaim the word story for science because story is kind of a bad word in science. Hmm. We're not saying that people should be melodramatic, that they should be um, inaccurate, that they should, you know, preach or we're not, we're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about writing your work up in a way 
that will be memorable and impactful. And human beings perceive stories as memorable and impactful. Mm, I like that idea about reclaiming because you're right, uh, the words evidence-based medicine and story wouldn't necessarily have been put together 10 years ago. I am heartened by the fact that I think they may be coming closer again. Uh, we're not the only people to be interested in narrative as a way of um, either informing, persuading, educating. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Now, uh, the process of writing it, was this just something like every weekend you sat down and did or uh, – and then you you and Chris decided who was going to do what and or were you just constantly editing uh, the entire time because of your predilection for same? Well, I, I was constantly editing, I will confess, but um, the I was lucky enough to have a sabbatical. And so my major sabbatical project was <clears throat> the book. And so I had the protected time to uh, write a bunch of new pieces and take some of the writer's craft pieces like the problem gap hook and say, you know, if you added 500 words to this, what would they be? Because it didn't have to be quite as distilled for, for a book chapter. And we wanted the book to give people more, not just 10 of the same things and 10 new things, for instance. So Chris and I worked closely together and thought, well, we want the book to walk people through the sections of a, of a scholarly manuscript. We want the book to give them some grammar pearls and we sort of conceptualized the basic ones, sentences, paragraphs, and some of the more advanced ones like voice and modality, that kind of thing. And then we thought we needed a section in the book about collaborative writing, about communities of writing, about peer review and how you respond to it. And in fact, the response that we got to the book proposal was um, the only thing they wanted more of was more of that last section. And so we ended up adding a couple new chapters we hadn't originally conceived of ourselves. Mm, yeah, but I liked it there at the end because I feel like the first bit is very focused on writing. And it is, as you say, it's kind of delightful as you, for me, are at the bottom end of this learning curve uh, and you're starting to reclaim some knowledge of language that maybe you were more interested in at high school, uh, but also new ideas. And I think it is a little bit exciting to do that deep dive. Uh, I've described how I have used it as a kind of dip in and out. Uh, is that what you think people do with it? Or do you think they start at the beginning and read to the end? Or you're not sure? I have been told by people that they've done both. I mm -hmm. have been told that people have read it from start to finish, which I just find delightful and fascinating. I think we intended it more as a people might read the first section and kind of go through the sections of, of a manuscript, but also that people might have a sense of the chapters that they needed. Of course, that actually implies that people know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the case, unless you have someone giving you writing feedback and pointing out, I think you could you know, your, your paragraphs could use more internal coherence, go read that chapter. Unless you have that, uh, it's hard to define for yourself. Mm. Uh, a third use that I think I've seen some people do, not necessarily in a bad way, but kind of um, weaponize it uh, when they've had comments from reviewers and others that they don't like. There's been a little bit of, but Lorelei says this, uh, that can be a bit of a problem when you become a guru because it may or may not be what you've said. <laughs> I have to tell you that I have had um, a reviewer comment that has said to me, I really 
think that the introduction of your paper would be much better if you read this problem gap hook piece that's an open access piece in the writer's craft. And I thought, oh my goodness, my own work is being weaponized against me. I did write a problem gap hook. Give me a break. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's kind of funny. I think the other, the other use that we imagined for the book is that we hoped if there was a resource like the book, that was targeted towards health professions and health services researchers and graduate students, that maybe graduate programs would offer more courses on writing. We don't offer formal courses. Hardly any of the master's or PhD programs in our field offer writing courses. And my hypothesis was that it's because there's nobody who feels comfortable teaching them mm -hmm. and there's no resource that they could use to give them some comfort and some curricular structure. So I very much hope that it will be taken up in that way too. Mm. That is a problem, isn't it? Cloning yourself must be fairly problematic when everybody wants you to be doing courses for them. Uh, <clears throat> and it does take more than the textbook. People would need to have a pretty good grasp of language uh, to be able to take that and coach others. Yes, I, but I, I'm really excited by the fact that a few people who've taken the writing masterclasses that Chris and I and the other faculty at our centre had put on or have taken the writing studio with me privately um, that they, uh, there are individuals who've gone back to their institution and used the slides. And like we, anyone who takes our courses, we give them all that stuff. Um, sometimes I'm asked to come and give like a little, you know, guest lecture as they do a workshop series with their faculty development office, for instance. So I think that that's really, really wonderful because Chris and I and the other SARI faculty, we, we can't possibly service the need here. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, um, totally recommend the book to anybody. And as I said, I'll put the link to that in uh, our podcast notes. All right, so I want to now get uh, a couple of other maybe sidelines off from here because you're obviously trying to convey these messages in other genres as well. I loved there was a last page in academic medicine where you've tried to put your entire story, not study message into one page. Uh, you're doing things like talk giving talks lovely talk uh, that I will again link to that you gave at McGill last year about writing and I think at the time you said that this was a relatively new genre for you to be trying to communicate these messages so tell me how does writing uh, connect with or inform your speaking oh so that last question was not where I thought you were going to end that little segue it wasn't very coherent of paragraph was it yeah <laughs> So can I give you the answer I was going to give to where I thought you were going to go and then give you that? I thought you were going to say, what's it like to, to speak about writing in a keynote format? Well, you answer that one. That sounds good. Let me answer that one. So I was really excited last year to get invited to give a keynote on writing. And if someone said to me, you know, what do you aspire to in the next 10 years? Wouldn't it be wonderful if major international conferences featured writing in this manner rather than just treating it like housekeeping. Of course, everybody's going to do that. And it's necessary to your career, but we don't actually want to talk about it. So I was really excited to give a keynote on writing. And I, and I hope that other venues see that as something they want to offer to conference goers. Because I think it, it creates a culture where we value it, and we create space to talk about it. So that's where I thought you were going to go. 
Um, in terms of my, how does my writing influence my speaking? Uh, one of my aspirations as a writer is for people to hear me, for them to know that it's me, even if they didn't see that my name was on the author line. So I obviously have some kind of sense of self-identity as a writer. I like to write and use metaphor. I like to use imagery. I like to, I attend to cadence probably a bit obsessively and I have to pull back a bit in the revisions. So everything is kind of syllabically rhythmic, uh, but, but I'm working on trying to have a recognizable voice. And so that is how I speak too. When I speak, I speak metaphorically. I use visual imagery when I'm speaking. I want those two things to be co cohesive so that mm. people hear me as me in both in both kinds of media. I think the other piece about writing that is a bit more of a stretch is sounding credible and serious and weighty while weaving in these other features of metaphor and lyricism. That's not hard when I speak. Even if I'm giving a very serious keynote, I don't struggle as much to integrate those two things, but I still feel like it takes effort on the page to make room for both those things. Mm. Yeah, well, it's very interesting to me as one who's probably done more uh, speaking than writing to sort of see how these two things are connected and we've still got the last session of our writer's studio to go where I think we talk more about this so I'm certainly looking forward to it but I think one of the things is it's quite confronting when you think you're interested in, and good at language uh, as I might have thought to have this whole new world open, open up in front of me. Do you find that the people who write well also speak well? And while you're thinking about that, um, I remember I watched Margaret Atwood. She came and gave a uh, talk at the Sydney Opera House a couple of years ago and she wandered out onto the stage with her handbag. She had her script for her talk written down on a piece of paper, went and stood behind the lectern, and I thought, oh, no, this is not going to be good. She's a great writer, but she's not going to speak well. Well, I was glued to every word she said, and I had to really change a lot of my preconceptions about what made a good talk. So with that in mind, tell me about the relationship between being a good writer and being a good speaker. Well, I came from the humanities where a good talk is written down, but written to be spoken. And so I would not have been at all surprised to see Margaret Atwood come to the lectern with her talk written and read it. But people can read something that wasn't meant to be read aloud, and that's a horrible experience for the listener. But reading something that was written to be read can be quite a profound experience. So I, I think that one doesn't a good writer doesn't necessarily make a good speaker or vice versa. But if you're if you write to be heard rather than to be read, then you can be a good writer and be a good speaker as well. Mm. I also think that some of the things that I tell people not to do, people do quite fabulously. And it's not only okay, it's wonderful. So I'm thinking of situations where I've seen people speak and they're very digressive. It feels as though, get back on the path. Where are you going? You're wandering off. But some people do that and they're mesmerizing. And by the way, I happen to think accents help. 
I think that Australian, New Zealand, Irish, English, Scottish accents, you can get away with almost anything at the microphone because the rest of us are just mesmerized by this lovely kind of lilt or whatever is in your voice. So, Because you don't have an accent, of course. Of course. Well, we can't hear it. I can't hear it when I listen to a Canadian. So they're not, it's not lulling me the way yours would. <laughs> All right. Well, that must be a hopeful source of success as a podcaster. I'm banking on it. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> All right. So a uh, couple of little things I just want to ask you about um, before we finish on thinking about some final uh, listener advice. Uh, what do you read in your spare time? Because I imagine reading is hugely important in thinking about writing. Reading is hugely important. I read fiction. I have no patience for nonfiction. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of my husband, who loves biographies and you know lots, lots of different kind of documentary type stuff. I think it's a product of graduate school where I couldn't read fiction for years because my stack of reading I had to do was so big and it was all nonfiction academic reading. So when I read for pleasure, I read fiction. I like narrative. Um, I like psychological thrillers, the really gory Scandinavian oh, wow. stuff. Joe Nesbo, okay. Lars Kepler, I love that stuff. Stephen King. I like Canadian novelists. But I read for the writing. And so even when someone says, oh, this is a great book, if I get a couple pages in and the writing is not lovely, I put mm. it down. Because for me, part of the joy is thinking, oh, look at that sentence. I'm going to read it again. Mm. Yes. Uh, have you read or had a look at Margaret Atwood's Burning Questions yet? No, I have not. I'm a bit on and off with Margaret Atwood. Oh, really? I have enormous regard for her, but sometimes she just gets way out there in left field and I can't follow her there. So I haven't yet read that one. Well, you might be interested because it's actually a series of stories, some of which are transcripts of speeches she's given. And uh, so you definitely see a couple of varied voices in the uh, essays that she's got in there anyway if she's listening i'll say that uh, I'll, I'll, we'll pass on that you've got a, a couple of qualifications about your admiration for margaret atwood <laughs> all right social media uh speaking of voice this is a place where people's voice can be problematic interesting uh, enticing. And I'm going to read your Twitter profile here. You describe yourself as a scientist, rhetorician, lover of language, studying healthcare teamwork, helping researchers improve and enjoy their writing, and hosting the hashtag Tucker Chronicles in reference to your dog. Uh, tell us about writing on social media platforms. What do you think? So it's interesting because I just last week changed my, my Twitter description. I had not added host of the Tucker Chronicles. Um, until last week. And that's relevant to my answer to this question, because social media gives us an opportunity to open up parts of ourselves that we wouldn't open up in other academic communication spaces. I would never talk about my dog at the podium. I would never write about my dog. I suppose he might feature in a writer's craft, but that's a different thing. Um, so social media gives us these opportunities. And I think as a consequence, we have to think really carefully about the identity that we are shaping for the world. And so for me, it's been two years that Tucker's been a part of my Twitter narrative, mostly as a positive thing to do during COVID when there just seemed to be so much doom and gloom out there. But I've only just embraced that he could actually be named and stay on there. And I won't, because it, I want a professional Twitter identity. 
Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, speaking with other people who are interested in this topic, that idea of at least knowing and cultivating and presenting the identity you want it to be. Like who cares what that is? Good luck to you, whatever you decide, but make sure it's the intentional one, uh, not the haphazard one that you present yourself as. Uh, Other little random question. Do you speak other languages? I read French and butcher it verbally. Mm -hmm. I do not read Portuguese, um, but used to speak it fluently, but it's been 20 years since I really did. So I think I could get it back with a little bit of practice. Um, but they don't, I don't know that I'm fluent enough in either one that they influence the shape of my English writing in the way that some of my colleagues who write in more than one language, they have some really lovely shapes to their writing. Sometimes they feel like it trips them up, but other times it's part of their voice. You can hear them because their sentence construction is different than what it would be in English. It's it's still solid and it's great, but it's different. Yes, I, and you, there is a Writer's Craft uh, article on this, When English Clashes with Other Languages, Insights and Cautions. Uh, and I found that very interesting And in you describing that where you were speaking, I think it was in Amsterdam, and trying to tell people not to have their prepositional pile-ups and all the Dutch folks were laughing, saying, but that's we love doing that in our language. And you had to sort of reconsider some of your advice in terms of what's not just culturally normal but linguistically normal in other languages. Yes, and I would say that interacting with writers who write in other language has really drawn my attention to the need to not be so essentialist about academic writing, to not assume that everybody thinks the way English writing is constructed. If you're a German writer, first and foremost, well, you've been taught to think about paragraphs in a very different way than we teach in the paragraph chapter related to English. And I think it's really important for those of us who have the luxury of having English as our first language because it's the published language of science, for us to think about the reality that it's not always so in other languages. It's really important, I think, for giving feedback and being a collaborative author with other authors who are writing in English as an additional language. Hmm, Very interesting. Uh, I've got a little way to go. I'm doing Spanish on Duolingo, and I believe I'm up to about 300 words, uh, and that is a good way to learn a language. (laughs) Uh, All right, so last two questions. One is about advice for listeners, and the other is about where to for you. Uh, But starting for our listeners, because I think they've heard they can read the writer's craft, they can go to your writer's studio, they can read the book. Um, but very broadly, if you're the average academic writer, uh, top tips for enhancing your vocabulary, really thinking about getting analytical about your writing and getting into the habit of getting feedback uh, when people ask you for the you know, elevator pitch version of your advice. What is it? My first piece of advice is to just keep writing. It's so difficult for our colleagues to find time to write. So I Advice number one, if you have 15 minutes, you can do something productive in 15 minutes. Use the 15 minutes that that you have. My second piece of advice would be to learn to read for the writing, not just for the content. Because if you start reading for the writing, thinking about how does that put together? Why do I like that opening so much? Then you can start to steal other people's good stuff. And that's what good writers do. They steal other people's good stuff and make those make those stylistic approaches their own. My third tip would be that we should not write alone. 
even though we all publish collaboratively, and most of us do, we tend to write alone. And then we send mm-hmm. it to someone else and they read it alone and send it back. And we struggle with their feedback alone. The more we can develop a community or even just, you know, a peer who will read your stuff. Um, Chris and I, I think I can speak for both of us. One of us sends the other one a draft to read. We read it within the next 12 hours because we have this committed relationship about supporting one another's writing. So I think that's really important. And lots of our health researcher colleagues don't have that. They're just writing alone. They're struggling alone. And I think the fourth thing is when people use their writing knowledge as a weapon against you, that's not about you. That's about them. Writing is a skill to be developed. And if someone else has the calmer rules down pat, bully for them. But it doesn't mean that your writing is good. Mm, I know. And there have been whole conferences, I'm sure, about the commas that I'm glad I wasn't at. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, in this one, uh, last question is a bit more uh about you, uh, where do you go from here as uh, in terms of your coaching and work on writing? I know you've got a whole other world that is to do with your research on teamwork and uh, fabulous things that you're doing in that regard but and collective competence. That's another podcast. But what about your coaching and work on writing? Where to from here? The beauty of this work on writing is that it's actually not my job. And so I get to go where my inclination takes me. And that's quite lovely. So I can't tell you, you know, what's the next five writer's crafts I'm going to write because I don't know. Those are going to emerge out of interactions with writers or my own struggles with writing. Uh, I can't tell you, you know, what kind of writing studio curriculum innovation are you going to do next year? I don't know because that's going to emerge out of the work I'm doing now. But I will end by saying that I think One of the reasons that I can focus on writing now and be a credible writing coach is that I spent 20 years being a credible health researcher first. If I had left my doctorate and taken this path and never had that 25 years of struggling to do good research and get it out in the world and get it recognized and have it have an impact, I'm not sure that the the offerings that I can now have for people for writing would have been taken up in the same way. I think the two Mm. things are related. People see that I know how to do it because I did it. Mm. Yeah, being a translator across fields is a very powerful position to be. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. So it means we have to keep watching what you're doing, uh, as we will. So I guess I just want to thank you so much. And just before I do that, I'll I'll just, again, for our listeners, remind you that we'll have both the links to the Writer's Craft, the Story Not Study, and a couple of those talks I've referenced uh, in our notes. But uh, Laurel, I just want to say thank you so much, both for your help with my writing, because that's been, as I said, truly transformative. But um, And there's actually an element, which is very unusual in these podcasts, of fangirling having this uh, experience this morning with you but uh, I want to thank you for your time because a lot of wisdom in what you've said and a lot of food for thought for people that gives them something to think about not what to think and uh, I really appreciate your thought you've put into this thanks for the invitation and for featuring writing on the Harvard Macy podcast wonderful all right well this is the Harvard Macy Institute podcast and Victoria Brazel signing off